0: We're going to continue our study of Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to just look at two verses today, Matthew 10:32 32 through, through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven, and we're going to unpack that. But let me take you back um, in John's Gospel to the incident where a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to talk with Jesus in John chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's not only a Pharisee, but he's part of the Sanhedrin, part of the seventy Uh, members of the ruling council. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him. Now, um, I've heard many people preach on this passage, and there have been preachers who will make a big deal out of the fact that Nicodemus came by night. He was ashamed uh, to, to talk to Jesus during the day. He was sneaking through the, the alleyways and they make a big deal about the word night here. And honestly, I've always thought um, they're probably reading too much into it. Maybe the reason John says that Nicodemus came by night is because Nicodemus came by night. And there's no other reason for it other than that. I've always thought that they've kind of overemphasized things. But But let me come back to that. But here he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's pro-Jesus. He's for Jesus. He recognizes that God is working through him because of his miracles. So he's a Bible scholar. He's part of the, the ruling council of Israel, and he's pro-Jesus, but he's not saved. He's not saved because Jesus says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you see that I'm from God, but you're not born again. You, 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 you can't even see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God. So he is not yet saved. Now, um, I was studying, not John 3, but John 19, where I learned more about Nicodemus. In John 19, Jesus has been crucified. His body is is still nailed to the cross, but he's dead. And look what John 19 says. After these things, after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, he was a secret disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission what we see here is a secret disciple who when Jesus is alive is in the shadows but now Jesus is dead and he comes out into the light and he says I will take the body of Jesus down from the cross he's no longer secret but look who else joins him verse 39 Nicodemus also and look at this who earlier had come to Jesus by night Wait a minute, this is not some passing comment that he just mentions in John 3. Now he brings it up again in John 19. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Nicodemus and Joseph take the body down. They're not afraid to come out All the other disciples have fled, but they are coming out of the dark into the light. I actually do think John is making the point that when Nicodemus starts out, he's a secret disciple. Now he is out in the open. Here's what I want you to get from Nicodemus. Unbelievers are characterized by valuing acceptance before man, over, above, valuing acceptance before God. In other words, unbelievers are characterized by this. If you have a choice to be accepted by men or accepted by God, they'll go with man. Believers are characterized by valuing acceptance by God or acceptance by Christ above being accepted by man. In other words, a characteristic of belief is you're unashamed to publicly identify with Christ. Let's go back to the main text. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, assumption it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. They'll ridicule you. They'll mock you. In this chapter, we learn they may kill you. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. Brother will turn against brother. Parents may betray their children and children may betray their parents. It's going to cost you to acknowledge me before men. But if you do, I will acknowledge before my Father. I I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. I will acknowledge you on Judgment Day. You were unashamed of me. I will be unashamed of you. And I will say, this is one of mine, Father. But, whoever denies me before men, those who are ashamed to be publicly identified with Christ before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there will be a line of people who go, Lord, Lord, and he will say, Away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. You were ashamed of me on earth. I am ashamed of you here in heaven. Now, let me give you a qualification before some of you just freeze up in panic here. okay? Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in one night. He was still saved. All right? He didn't lose his salvation. But Peter's denials were a falling away, a stumbling from the overall direction he was headed. The the overall direction of his heart was to unashamedly follow Jesus, but he stumbled. Stumbling is a reality. What, What Matthew 10 is talking about is not the occasional stumble. It's talking about the overall direction of your heart if the overall direction of your heart is that you are more concerned what people think of you than following Christ and, and, and coming out in the open, if you're more concerned with what people think of you, then guess what? You have denied Christ by being ashamed to identify with him. Right? Now, let's get practical. Okay? There's more ways to deny Christ or to confess Christ or acknowledge Christ than just standing up in front of a group of people and saying, I'm a Christian. See the fish sticker on the back of my car? I'm a Christian. There are ways you can acknowledge him and ways you can deny him other than the fish sticker. Let's talk about them. They all begin with the letter B, by the way. Can anybody guess what the first one is? It begins with a B, and then you get wet. Baptism. All right. Let's talk about baptism. Matthew's gospel. It concludes with Christ being crucified and resurrected from the dead. Then he gathers all his disciples before him and he gives the command for the church. Here's the command All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Your marching orders, go make disciples. Now, how do we do that, Jesus? Well, there's a beginning, and then there's a follow-through. The beginning of making a disciple is this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's the beginning. You, a, a disciple is made when they first trust in Christ. They place their trust in Him as Savior and Lord. And then they identify with Him by being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, That's the start of the discipleship process. And then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's your lifelong pursuit to learn everything um, that he has taught and to obey him. And how long are we to do this, church? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're to do this until he returns, until the age is ended. Right? Make disciples. What's a disciple? A baptized follower of Christ who desires to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Notice it doesn't say make believers. Make decisions to make disciples, those who start with obedience to baptism, and they're characterized by obedience to everything else uh, Jesus has taught. Day of Pentecost, Peter goes out on the streets of Jerusalem, he preaches, you have crucified your Messiah. And God raised him from the dead. And Peter pulls all these Old Testament Scriptures together and convinces them that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead, and they believe it. And they go, what should we do? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, have a personal relationship with Jesus. You follow him, do whatever you want, but there's no need to publicly identify with Jesus. No. Repent and be baptized. Well, who should be? Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What should we do? Repent. And be baptized. Publicly identify with the Messiah that you have just crucified. By the way, just a point of clarification here, it says baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it says in the name of Jesus. Now, this does not cancel out this. There's a a debate among some. Um, Do you get baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as we are commanded to do until the end of the age? or just in the name of Jesus. Well, this is not saying you shouldn't be baptized in the, the full name of the Trinity. This is emphasizing that you have just crucified the Messiah. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, emphasizing that the one you have crucified is uh, the, main, the main one you're to identify with here, but it doesn't nullify uh, the command to be baptized in the full name of all three persons of the Trinity. Okay, So here you're called to be baptized from the start. From the start. Okay. Now, some of you are hearing this, you're going, are you saying you must be baptized to be saved? Nope, absolutely not. You are not saved by being baptized. You are not saved by anything you do. You should be baptized, though. Just because it doesn't save you doesn't make it some optional thing, right? What what if somebody said, Pastor, does cutting off an affair, if I cut off my affair, will that get me into heaven? No, you're not saved by cutting off the affair. But that's not an optional commandment that you can choose to obey or disobey, why is the command to be baptized any different than the command to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, to not lie? All right. In fact, I wonder if our de-emphasis of baptism, by the way, we don't go around, we're a Baptist church, but we don't go around trumpeting baptism all the time. Some people think that's what Baptists are. Like Every Sunday they're baptizing one another. It's just crazy in there. Baptism crazy. No, we don't don't talk about baptism all the time, right? But I wonder if our de-emphasis of baptism, because we don't want to scare people and we don't want to make them think it saves them. I wonder if what we're doing is we're taking away the first call to obedience. You know, when when people got baptized in the New Testament, it was usually the day of they the day they were saved. They didn't agonize over it. Oh, I need to be led. I haven't been led to be baptized. Wait, we're, we're not talking about writing a poem here. We're talking about obeying a command. You don't ha- you don't you aren't led to obey. If Jesus died for you and your only hope of salvation is what He did for you, and you bow your heart and your knee to Him as your Savior and Lord, you don't go, you know, when I'm led, I'll obey you. I wonder if our de-emphasis of this first step of obedience leads to an entire life of you being Lord, not Him being Lord. Well, I'll get around to it if I feel led. I'll obey if I feel led. I'll cut off the affair if I feel led. Were you ever baptized? No, I wasn't led. Hmm, I wonder if our disobedience to our Lord on the day of salvation leads to a life of disobedience. Okay? Now, let me me take the pressure off a second here, okay? Because some of you are going... I'm confused about baptism. In fact, uh, if I were to ask, let me ask, if you feel comfortable. How many of you were baptized as a baby? Raise your hand. Okay, me too. I I was baptized as a baby. I was sprinkled. I was dunked. I was... If you're saved by baptism, I am covered, right? You're not saved by baptism. Okay? So most people are baptized as a baby, and then they start going to an evangelical church, a Baptist church, a Bible-teaching church, and they hear about getting baptized as a believer, and they're kind of like a deer in the headlights. They go, what was that whole infant baptism thing? And now I'm hearing about believer baptism. And I, I need some time to sort it out. And I would say, please, take the time you need to sort it out. I don't want, you ever go to one of those high-pressure um you know, timeshare things. Come to our presentation, and we'll give you tickets to Disney. So you go, and they're like, "They sign here. You're gonna buy this, or we won't let you out of here. Your kids are being held hostage." Getting like, I don't want anybody to think, "Wow, you know, that's I'm being pressured into getting in the tank." No, I want you to get baptized because you know that's what the scripture teaches. And you want to be obedient. And if you need to take time to do that, that's fine. By the way, um, I'm really big on these books. There's, uh, Zondervan has a whole series of them, um, Four Views of Baptism. But there's four views of this, five views of that. It's all these theological issues. And they go out and they find the best person to represent the different positions that are out there, to write the best defense of their position. And then the other guy's, read the other guy's essay before the book is, is published, and then they critique the other position. All right? You go, well, if you're recommending that, it's probably a Baptist book. No. There's the view that infant baptism saves you. There's the view that infant baptism includes you into the church. There's the view that adult baptism saves you. And then there's the view that, that I would hold that you're saved by faith alone, but you should get baptized as a believer. Okay? Okay and these four different views are presented and defended, and then they all fight amongst one another. It's really great. Okay? If, I had, uh, if I had a seminary, the seminary of Brian Smith, I would take all these books and I would say, Guys, take the book, we're studying baptism, you go read all four of these sort it all out, and come up with the best defense of the, of the position that you think is most biblical. All right? Now, if you go, I don't have time for all that, here's the other thing I'd encourage you to do. Just read the book of Acts. Is it, is, it, is it they believe and then they get baptized? Or is it a bunch of people get baptized and later on they magically come to believe? No, it's always they believe and then they get baptized. You know, What about household baptisms? There's a handful of household baptisms. But if you study that passage, those passages, you'll find out that the entire household gets, gets baptized. But you'll find that everybody also believes. You have to assume that there were little baby infants in there who were, were uh, getting baptized. It doesn't say that. That's an argument from silence. Okay? But uh, all that to say, um, I don't want you to, to be manipulated into getting baptized. I want you to study the issue if it is really a stumbling block for you. And there's a difference. Now follow this. There's a difference between a person who says, I've really studied the issue and I've concluded that the Bible clearly teaches that babies should be baptized. It's, it's all, the other way is wrong. This is the right way. Now that's, if you've studied it and you've come to that conclusion, that's fine. It's really not fine, but it's fine for the sake of argument, okay? On the other hand, if you say, I hold to infant baptism because it spares me from having to go public. I think we're back into Matthew 10. You might just be ashamed to publicly identify with Jesus and take that first step. Of obedience. Now, I said the word public. This always comes up. Does baptism have to be public? What about a private baptism? Well, as you read about the baptisms in the Bible, first of all, you've got John the Baptist baptizing, and it says all Judea went out to hear this guy preach and to be baptized. Thousands of people went out publicly confessing their sins and being baptized. Jesus steps out of the crowd, and he is publicly baptized. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches. They say, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And how many people got baptized? 3,000 people got baptized. You go, ah, but what about the Ethiopian eunuch? Philippian or Philippians, uh, uh, Acts chapter 8. It's Philip, not Philippians. That Philip evangelizes a guy privately, and he says, there's a lake. Let's get baptized. And Philip baptizes him. Private baptism. Therefore, I want my own personal private baptism because of the Ethiopian eunuch. I've got my private verse, yes. What's, what's, uh, who, who was the Ethiopian eunuch? He was an official from Ethiopia on official business. Right? I, I uh, googled Ethiopian eunuch, and there's pictures of uh, this is the, an actual picture of the baptism. No, but but what every artist portrays is here's uh, here's the eunuch, here's Philip, and there's an entourage. He's on official business. He's got chariot drivers, and look at this guy. He's got a, a patio umbrella. He walks behind him and hangs it over him. But he got baptized with witnesses. Right? At bare minimum, there's always the baptizee and the baptizer, right? You, n- there's no individual baptism. In fact, God created it in such a way that it, you can't possibly do it yourself. You need somebody to dip you in the water but you know the private or the 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 ones where there's only a few people getting baptized you know why that is the book of acts is the story of the spread of the church when paul goes to uh uh i believe it is philippi he meets lydia and she believes and she is baptized and you go well where why didn't they call the whole church together there was no church she, was the church. she, Paul, Barnabas, and her group of ladies who were by the river, that was it. There was no church. So don't point to these, these select cases where there's only a small group of people um, and say, see, there's my verse for private baptism. You should be unashamed to stand before your church and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm saved by faith alone in what he did for me. Not by works, and I want to do this step of obedience, not for salvation, but to identify with Jesus. Right? Ladies, imagine you're dating a guy. And um, one day he proposes marriage. he says, "I love you. I always turn into a Southern when I do this." I- I love you. Will you marry me? I just—I'm so full of love for you. And she goes, "Oh, Billy Bob, I have always wanted to marry you. Oh, I've been waiting for this day. Where's my ring?" He goes, "Ring? No. <laughs> We're—people will know we're married then. No, we're not. <laughs> Isn't my private love enough for you, sugar mama? You know." And uh, she goes, well, everybody else has a ring. Well, isn't my personal love enough? Well, okay. When's the date of the wedding? Wedding? We're going down to the courthouse today. I'm going to run to Walmart, go to the laundry, laundry pick up, uh, uh, pick up some, uh, uh, some eggs at the supermarket, and then we'll, we'll get this over with. No wedding? No, isn't my personal private love enough? Well, what about the honeymoon? Isn't my personal private love enough for you? Well, um, do you have a house? No, you live in your house. I live in my house. I don't want to alter my lifestyle too much. You know, Billy Bob, I'm beginning to think that you're, you're not willing to go public. Well, it's personal. It's a private love. The Christian who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, Privately. I think Jesus is going to say, I, I kind of get the feeling you're ashamed of me. You're ashamed to go public. One way we can deny Jesus is by being ashamed to get baptized. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. Have you been baptized? No. Get baptized. I need to pray... There are things you need to pray about, and there are things you just need to do, unashamedly. And you know what? I think what you'll you'll find is when you take those radical steps, the next one becomes easier, and the next one becomes easier. The more radical you get, the more radical you get, right? All right, so, boy, I went long on baptism. Should we do these others? Let's do these others real quick here. There's another way to... uh, to, uh, Deny Jesus' behavior, your behavior. This is interesting. Paul writes to Titus, who's on the island of Crete. And he's talking about some of the Cretans, the Cretans, who are on the island, who are are claiming to be Christians. But look what Paul says. They profess to know God. But they, there's that word, they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. You go, Paul, tell us what you really feel about the Cretans. Right? In fact, Paul says this. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. <laughs> yeah, they are they are disgusting pagans on that island, Titus. All right. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Paul expects them, the Christians on Crete, to rise above, to rise above their culture to rise above their family upbringing. You're not allowed to say, well, this is just the way I was raised. There goes that southern accent again. <laughs> <laughs> my, my Papa Billy Bob raised me this way, and I'm a Christian, but I can't. I don't expect Christ to really change me because this is the way I was raised. Isn't it interesting that Paul expects these isolated people, a bunch of disgusting pagans on an island, when Christ comes into them, he expects Christ in them to overpower the culture outside of them. No, we don't get to use the excuse, well, we're in this culture. How do you expect the church to be any different? How do you expect Christians to be any different? We're in this culture that just bombards us with media. Yep. But Christ in you does not allow you to stay exactly where you are. You know, um, I talk to my kids about going to school. And it's a a war zone. Depravity everywhere. And you say, well, why don't you get together with the other Christians and hang out together and pray for one another? And um, I hear the response that a lot of the kids who claim to be Christians and go to youth groups are no different then the rest of the kids who swear like sailors and disrespect their teachers and disrespect their parents and have pornography on their cell phones, uh, they, they're, they're a bunch of cretins. They go to youth groups somewhere. But they're not Christians. They're no more Christians than a pig rolling in a, in a mud puddle. Paul expects your behavior to break you through, break, break through and change you so you're different than your environment. Right? Now, interesting verse. in. Um, did I even put it there? I didn't put it there. 1 John 3, 6. John says, No one who abides in him, and the ESV translates the tense of the verb, uh, it says, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Now, this doesn't mean that if you become a Christian, you become sinless. What this means is that if you become a Christian, you don't stay in the mud puddle. There needs to be some growth. There needs to be some change. Right? If, if you say, well, I became a Christian and my life really hasn't changed at all, you're not a Christian. Christ in you. God is living in you. You can't stay in the mud puddle. Now, does this mean you become perfect? No. Does this mean you become righteous overnight? No. What it means is you can't be comfortable in the mud puddle. Johnny Cash had, a, had a, uh, an album called Redemption. And there was a picture of a black dog with white spots and a white dog with black spots. That's a picture of what happens when you become a Christian. Before, your nature was black with a few good things. Now your nature is your white contrasting color, but there's still some black spots you can't stay in the mud puddle um i'm going to skip all that who's that that's Johnny Piper yeah some of you hear me quote him all the time but you've never seen him there he's ordering table for 5 right okay all right anybody know who that is that's a that's a a uh A rap artist, a Christian rap artist, hip hop, because I'm so hip, right? Called Tadashi. And, um, John Piper, ultra conservative, reformed, Baptist pastor, has teamed up with Tadashi with a rap song called Make War. And what both of these guys guys have in common is passion for Christ in two very different ways. This guy's passion comes off in preaching. This guy's passion comes off in rap music. But both of them look at the Christian world and they say, We see so many Christians wallowing in their sin and so little fight. Are they Christians at all? Right? So let's, uh, I won't subject you to the whole song. <laughs> some of you are going to be turned off by Piper and love Tadashi. And some of you are going to be turned off by Tadashi and love Piper. So I- the song is not included for reasons of copyright compliance. You get it? Christ in you doesn't allow you to sit in the mud puddle, make war against your sin. Or you're a Cretan who claims to be a Christian, but you deny him by your sin. Be perfect? No. Make progress? Yes. Let's see some fight. Let's see some fight. And you could be offended by me or offended by Piper or offended by Tadashi. Or you can say, no, amen. We need this motivation to make war. Now, let me give you one last uh, last way we can deny Christ. There's, there's baptism, there's behavior, and then there's belief. Peter, 2 Peter 2.1 says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who, who, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Here we have formal false teaching. Now look at what their teaching does even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Their teaching appears Christian, but in essence what it's doing is it is, here's that word again, denying the Master. Interesting word, Master. It's not the typical word for Lord. It's the word despotos. The idea is that God... Uh, is the sovereign despot. He is in control, and their teaching is denying that. In other words, they were teaching what theologians call license. All right, What is license? Well, license takes the glory of the gospel, which says you're saved by faith alone, not by anything you do. And it says, oh, great, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want to do. It becomes your ticket, your license to sin. Jesus died in my place. The penalty is paid. I don't have to fear hell. Let's live that way. That's what license is. Now, here's the problem. Again, we so emphasize salvation by faith, faith alone, that we go, okay, I've got faith. I believe the creed. I must be in. But alongside of the call to believe and have faith, there's the call to repent. Right? What is repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin. Faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning from your sin. You're not just turning to Christ to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. You are turning to Christ to be delivered From the presence of your sin. You hate sin. Sin used to be your master. Your new master, your new despotage, your new slave owner is Christ. We emphasize believe so much, we don't emphasize repent. Notice John the Baptist came saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They go hand in hand. Paul summed up his ministry by saying it was about testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there, today there's a formal kind of teaching, there's a, a brand of heretical theology that says it's wrong to call people to repent. They think it's adding works to the gospel. If I call you to believe in Christ and repent of your sins, they would say that that is a false gospel because it's adding works to the gospel. I would say it's not adding works. I would say that the very nature of true faith as you're turning to Christ better be a turning away from sin. You, you can distinguish the two on paper, faith and repentance, but you can't separate them in real life. A, repen- a faith that doesn't have repentance is not a true faith. Right? So we, we call you, yes, to believe in Jesus. And assumed in that call is turn your back on your sin. Look what Jesus says. In Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody who says, Lord, who mouths the words, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What uh, What does this mean? Does this mean that you need to do things to earn salvation? No. What this is saying is that true faith will result in obedience to God's will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, didn't we do a lot of religious stuff? Yeah, you did. And then I will declare declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, you went to church. You carried a Bible. You sang the songs, but you were lawless in your heart, away from me. In other words, you can say, Lord, Lord, but if your coming to Christ doesn't result in bowing your knee and bowing your heart to him in repentance, it's a false faith. Um, These are illustrations from the, the, the Campus Crusades Spiritual Laws book, there's good things and bad things about that book. This is a very good thing though. Um, this is a picture of the self-directed life. Here's a picture of of the non non-saved person. You got self on the throne of the life. Your interests, you're you're calling the shots and here's Jesus outside. Okay. Now, some people think you can invite cre- Christ into your life here, but he's at the foot of the throne in in uh You're still calling the shots. You've invited him to be your Savior, but not your Lord. This is true salvation. Self gets off the throne. Christ gets on the throne. And as you bow to him, he calls the shots. I want to ask you this. Which one describes your life? Is Christ outside? Is he in, but at the foot? Or is he on the throne? And if you say, well, it's kind of a a tie between these two. What do you want? What do you want to be? What is the desire of your heart? Do you want this? Then repent. Whether this is the first time you've repented of controlling your life and not letting him control your life, or the 20th time or the 100th time, this is where we need to be. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I call us to be unashamed of Christ in our public identification in baptism, in the way we live, and in what we believe. I call us to repent of gossip, of lust, of selfishness, gluttony, arguments, drunkenness, drug abuse, sleeping together outside of marriage, disrespect for parents, greed, apathy toward God's Word, call us to repent of it all and to turn to Christ and bow the knee, invite Him to sit on the throne and may we be unashamed to identify with Him privately and publicly so that day when He returns, He is unashamed to identify with us. We're going to celebrate communion.